Amen. That was close. No temptation has come upon you that is not common to man where God has not provided a way of escape. Tom just escaped. And I just, uh, he just saved my reputation, so I don't have one to start with anyways. Hey, we're in the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at chapters, well, starting in chapter 6, we may get through 7, touch on 8. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 6. And we are going to discuss the, the story of Gideon. So Gideon is the, the judge, the tribal leader uh, that God has chosen to use in this part of the narrative. And so this morning is going to be slightly different. We've seen in this series, we've seen a real common theme. And that main theme continues where the people of God basically commit uh, horrific sins, turn away from God, stop listening to God, take on uh, idol worship, uh, be conformed to the world around them. That causes slavery, um, oppression, bondage. They cry out to God, God sends a deliverer, and the cycle continues. So we've seen that theme over and over, and the theme certainly continues. But this morning, uh, I felt led to, to kind of take some little detours. Most national parks in our country, there's, there's a roadway or a highway, and there's all these little uh, scenic overlooks, right? Scenic bypass here, scenic overlook there, scenic overlook there. So we're going to do a little bit of that as we observe the story of Gideon. Uh, I want to take these, what I think are very applicable, uh, bypass overlook detours and, and see what we learn about ourselves, what we learn about God, uh, and, and then just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to show us how we can apply that to our lives. Uh, talking to, so you may want to take notes, not because the sermon's going to be so great, uh, but because it's going to be confusing. And uh, talked to a friend, and he said, write it down and sort it out later. And I kind of like that. So we're going to trust the, the Spirit of God to sort it out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have not left us alone. And I think that is one of the main themes that you continue to tell your people, uh, whether it be in the book of Judges, uh, whether it, uh, we be reminded of it in the songs that we sang, and here today where we sit where we stand as we look to apply it to our lives as we leave on this uh, specific Sunday, that you are with us, that you see us. And so we honor you. We ask that you bring about uh, conviction where we need conviction and encouragement where we need encouragement. And we will trust you to bring yourself honor and cause us to be humble before you today. Amen. So the narrative that we pick up is basically the, the Midianites continue to raid the people of Israel, and they raid their land, and they steal their crops, and they steal their animals, uh, and they essentially leave the land in waste. And so this takes place over a period of seven years, and so you could imagine uh, you work hard, you gather some crops, and you know every six months somebody comes and takes them. And so at that time, now we have Israel who's terribly afraid for good reason, so they're hiding their resources in caves, they're doing everything they can to preserve from the Midianite raiders to just, to just survive and to live. And the cycle happens over and over and over. So they're in deep persecution, and then we get uh, Israel that cries out to God. And so they, they cry out to God again, and they're looking for deliverance, from their circumstances. And one of the, the themes that I've observed that I think is very applicable to us is I don't really think Israel is partaking in true repentance. 
even though they're crying out for deliverance, we've seen this enough now in the history of Israel and in the book of Judges that there's certainly regret for certain things in their lives. We've seen a bit of that. Um, they're certainly sorry for certain aspects. We've seen some of that. But to me, it seems a lot more like they are... They want delivered from their circumstance. They want, they want freed from where their sin has got them as opposed to true repentance where they're truly sorry for the sin itself. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says, Your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So Corinthians differentiates between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Many times I think they feel the same to start with. There's some form of regret. There's some form of discomfort. There's something that we don't like. But I really believe that oftentimes worldly sorrow has with it, I just don't like the consequence of my sin. And I think many of us can relate to that. You're at a dinner party and you don't... Your words don't honor your spouse. Your words aren't reflective of respect and cherishing and nourishing your spouse. And so on the way home, they seem pretty distant and pretty cold. And you're wondering, what's the matter with you? And you realize at that moment, uh, they're not happy with you, right? And so you play it forward, and you don't like having an upset spouse. It's not fun to be around. You know you're not going to get close that night. And so, hey, I'm sorry. Well, are we sorry because God has asked me to respect and honor my wife and I have sinned against him? Or am I sorry because I just don't want a, an upset wife? And so many times I think we find ourselves in this scenario that you have put money on the credit card four, five, six times without talking to your spouse. And you've had many conversations and agreements about the budget. And all of a sudden they say, I don't know if I can you can keep the credit card. And then all of a sudden, you're offended at them for taking your credit card. Is that true repentance? Or am I just sorry I got caught? In Israel's time, I think we see over and over and over, sorry for the consequence, but not sorry for the sin itself. True repentance focuses on your sin against God. In Psalms 51, 4, it says this, Against you and you alone I have sinned and done evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. My experience when I look at Scripture and my experience in my life is the only time I'm truly willing to, to look at the, the gravity of my sin is when I have a good picture of the grace of God. See, my sin stays, it's focused on my circumstance. Uh, it can stay, it's focused on other people. It can stay, it's focused on the consequence. But when I stop and get my eyes off of that and I look to the grace of God, when I look to the cross of God, I think that's when true repentance I can afford. Romans 2.4 says, The kindness of God leads to repentance. Romans 8.1 says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The focus is on God. The focus is on Christ. 1 John 3.20 says, When your heart condemns us, take heart, because God is greater than our hearts. So I really believe true repentance, the Holy Spirit comes upon his people and he brings conviction. And as soon as we agree with that conviction, as soon as we admit that we have sinned against our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, he becomes the Comforter. That same Spirit brings me underneath the cross of Christ and says, now be washed by the blood of Jesus. 
And then that same spirit reminds me that he inhabits me. And just like we sang, we are who he has made us to be. And so my first observation as I look is how tempting it is to, one, look at our circumstance, two, only to look at our sin, and then raise our fists at God and ask him, why is life happening this way? And I think there's another way that we get to see and there's another way that we can begin to apply when we keep our eyes on who God is. When we turn my attention and my gaze to the greatness of the cross and his redemption, your sin isn't as scary anymore. You take it serious, but you don't get stuck in it. The other thing I notice here, and I think it is God trying to promote this idea of godly repentance instead of just sorry for the consequence, is this go around, once Israel cries out, instead of immediately sending a deliverer, he sends a prophet. So he sends a prophet, and the prophet says in 6.12, oh, I'm sorry, before that, the prophet reminds them that God has delivered them many times, and he brings up Egypt. And he talks about how God continues to deliver them, but it says, but you would not listen. And so the first thing that they get when they cry out for deliverance is a sermon, a reminder to turn their eyes on the faithfulness of God and to check their response. And then as we move forward, we see the deliverer. Tom cited it earlier in Judges. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. It says, The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says, The Lord, or Yahweh, is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if Yahweh is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Did he not deliver us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. So the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, tries to encourage him that he's a mighty man of valor, and what's the first thing Gideon does? You see this bondage? You see this oppression? He looks at his circumstances and he begins to complain because he feels forsaken by God. And I'm pretty convinced that is the primary scheme of the enemy, is for us to look around us, see the state of our world, see the state of of our lives, and make claims against God because of them. This is so tempting for us to do as humans. To, to begin to tell God that he's mishandled some things on this planet. That he's mishandled some things in our kids' lives. That he's mishandled some things in our past. That he's currently mishandling some things in our lives. And as soon as the enemy gets us questioning the goodness of God, as soon as the enemy gets us questioning who's smarter, God or me, uh, we're, we're in trouble. And so I, I see this in, in Gideon here. So Gideon all of a sudden has tremendous self-doubt. He's not only upset at God and feel forsaken, but now he has tremendous self-doubt and tremendous lack of confidence. When in 15 he says, how can I save Israel? My clan is weak and I'm the least of my father's house. And God continues to try to get him to believe in this partnership. Get him to believe that he can be a vessel, that he can be an ambassador, that he can be a deliverer. 14, the angel of the Lord says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Do not I, the Lord, send you. So there's a lot of commentators who think this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. I don't. Uh, Yes, Gideon continues to ask for certain signs. He really wants assurance. But I think he expresses tremendous faith here. And I think what the angel of the Lord is trying to convince him of is... Trust that I am sending you, and trust that I am going with you, 
And because of that, because of that union, because of that partnership, because of the covenant, you are a mighty man. You will deliver. And we see Gideon's faith increase as the story goes. 616, the Lord tells Gideon, I will be with you and you will strike down Midian. So God is promising his presence and he's promising his victory. And if you read through the scriptures, he continues to do that in our lives. That we certainly are in a battle, Christians, but we battle from a position of victory because of the grace of God, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other thing I observe here is that Gideon had a spirit to obey. He intended to obey. He asked the angel of the Lord in verse 17, he says, stay here until I return with a present, basically with an offering. Gideon says, don't depart until I come back. And then as he comes with the meat and the broth and the pot, the angel of the Lord tells him what to do with the offering, and Gideon does it. So he's looking for some assurance. He's, he's, he wants to be sure that this is God. And you can say that maybe he's a coward. You can say that he lacks faith. But I know a lot of godly people who when they're up against a tough decision, they just want to make sure. When you're trying to decide whether you propose or not, you pray a lot, you talk a lot. When you're trying to decide whether you move out of state, whether you switch jobs, whether you retire, we want to make sure, right? Many times that's wise. And Gideon is one of these people. And remember, uh, the way Tom said it is, he's looking in the barrel of a gun. He's not talking about retiring. He's talking about going to war. His life is, and the lives of his family and his friends are at stake. So like us, he'd like to be sure. And you see God answer that. But Gideon, the whole time he's asking for clarity, you see this heart to obey. He does what the angel asks him to do. We call this, uh, circles where I run around in, we call this the difference between an open cry and a closed cry. A closed cry is where I say, God, show me what you want, and then I'll make my decision. I'll, I'll assess and weigh what you say and see if it lines up with my wisdom, and then I'll make my decision. Many, many times God doesn't even answer that. In the, in the history of the Bible and in our lives as well. You see, either you're God's authority or he's yours. If I look to scripture and I say, yeah, I'm going to make uh, decisions on what I prescribe to and what I don't, who's the authority there? I'm the authority over scripture if that's my application. Or scripture's my authority. It's one or the other. Either you allow it to inform all that you do and all of your thinking, or you're still trying to put yourself above that. There is no in-between. And an open cry, like Gideon, is, God, show me what to do, and I will do it. Because I'm convinced that you are creator. I'm convinced that you are judge. I'm convinced that you are perfect. This is what it says in Psalms 37, 31. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The law of his God. Have you come to a place where you recognize that your position on this globe is to come underneath God? Many times we want God's guidance, but if we haven't come underneath God, we're just asking for his input. 
Many times we want to know what the Christian view is of this or that. But if you haven't come to a conclusion of who Jesus is, you're asking the wrong question. If you haven't resolved in your mind that Jesus is the creator, if you haven't resolved in your heart that Jesus is the judge, that Jesus is who he says he is, the redeemer, the deliverer, king of kings and lord of lords, why in the world are you asking what the Christian view of this or that is? It doesn't matter because all we do with that is take it, shake it up in our wisdom, and then we lay it out however we want to do. Who's God there? I'm my God. And what you see with Gideon, even though he's asking for lots of different signs, you see a heart to obey, and you see that he has resolved in his mind that God is who he says he is. Chapter 6, verse 22, Gideon realizes once God has consumed the offering kind of miraculously, Gideon, it says, he perceives that he was speaking with God, and it's implied that he fears for his life. Because the angel says, peace, you will not die. Remember in Exodus, when God is speaking with Moses, Exodus 33, 20, God says, God's going to pass by, the Shekinah glory of God is going to pass by Moses, hide yourself in the rock, because anyone who sees the face of God will surely die. So Gideon recognizes that he's speaking with God, and he fears him. And God again meets him where he's at and says, it's okay, child. It's okay, son. You're not going to die. Peace be upon you. So the story goes on, and he asks him to destroy the altars of Baal. In 625, it says, that your father has. So somehow Gideon's father is, is a, probably a powerful man in, in his tribe, and somehow he has allowed or funded these idol worship to Baal and the Asher. We've seen them over and over in this book of Judges, haven't we? And so the angel of the Lord says, I need you to go and destroy these idols. You see, before they can put away or put aside the enemies around them, the Midianites, God's asking them to put aside or tear down or put away the enemies within them and among them. He says, before I deliver you from the Midianites, let's get rid of this stuff that's in your presence, that's in your homes, that's in your town, that's in your heart. And my experience is many times we want deliverance from our relational problems, our emotional problems, right? I'm sick of feeling this anxiety, or I'm tired of losing it in my anger, or I've been deeply depressed. And many, many times I think God says, you remove the idol from your heart, Nick, and watch your anger disappear. You remove the thing you're holding so tightly to and watch your anxiety fade. He almost always deals with the enemies within before the circumstances and the enemies around us. Psalms 103, 8 through 14 says, The Lord is merciful, slow to anger. He knows our frame and that we are but dust. God's always meeting us where we're at. And so with Gideon... You see over and over and over God being patient with Gideon's requests for assurance. And many times I think we think of the patience of God like this. Oh, he's rubbing his temple, he's tapping his toe, he's like, really? Okay, that's not patience, that's not godly patience, that's not Christian patience. I want you to picture when your kids first learn to walk. 
And when they're stumbling around, you're not going, oh my gosh, stay on your feet. Right? You're excited. When they take a step or two, you're like, good job. Now get up and try it again. I work with all kinds of kids doing athletics, and when I got a five-year-old trying to swing, I'm encouraging him in patience. I'm saying, now use your hips. There you go. And every victory, you're encouraging him. That's, that's biblical patience. So when you think of God being patient with you, I don't want you to think of this like annoyed father. I want you to think of a father who's excited about your victories, and he's continuing to meet you where you're at. Right? What do we learn from the Lord? Because it's not just he was gracious and he was merciful in this event. Yes, he was. But God is merciful. God is gracious to Israel, to Gideon, to me, to you. So begin shaping what he looks like. Not just an event and a character and a moment he did it right. Remember the story here, and so to get a little fun fact of the battle before we go to more application, essentially you got 135,000 Midianites versus 32,000 Israelites. No, wait. God says, hey, if they're, if they're afraid, send them home. Minus 22,000. Now we're down to 135,000 Midianites to 10,000 Midian uh, Israelites. He says, wait, send them to go get a drink. And differentiates between those who kneel and those who stand and laugh. And he says, there we go. Now send those ones home. And so now all of a sudden we got 135,000 people versus how many? 300. And we, God tells us why in Judges 7-2. In order that Israel may not boast against me and that her own strength has saved her. So what he's doing is trying to show once again Instead of relying on your own resources or your lack of, like Gideon started with, I'm the least of my family, we're the least tribe, God's saying, all right, here's the deal. I want you to rely on me. I want, you to, I want everyone to know it is I who bring deliverance. And so I'm going to whittle you down to 300 people so that your pride may not come up against me. What was convicting for me is any time I rely on my own resources, it's not just arrogant but it is against God. It is not taking on what he has given. It is not receiving his grace. So Gideon asked for a fleece, right? And, and Judges 6, he says, okay, if, if you're God, uh, would you send this fleece down and, and make the fleece wet and the, the ground around it dry? And he, God does that. And then he says, okay, okay, one more time, now switch it. And God does that. And I think it can be tempting here, and I think we need to be very careful. I don't think this is encouraging us to, to ask for a bunch of signs from God when we need to make a decision or assurance. Maybe God's done that in your life because of his grace and because of his mercy, but I think we need to be very careful asking for signs. And I think what Gideon, part, Gideon is partly doing here is he's trying to know that God is all-powerful, that God is above and beyond his circumstance. He's trying to know the character of God, as opposed to just give me this little sign so I know whether to turn left or whether to turn right. Here's the other reason I think we need to be careful. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and at many times in his various ways. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You want a sign that God is for you? Look at the cross. You want a sign that God is with you? Look at the empty tomb. You want a sign that God is loving? Look at the life of Jesus. We've been given the sign. If Jesus Christ truly has came and died on my behalf and has resurrected and given me his spirit, I don't need a lot more signs. I need to spend more time meditating, pondering, and praising him for that. And as a result, I believe I will get guidance. Some interesting words here. When Gideon is asking for the fleece, this is in verse uh, 636 and 37, he's asking and he says, as you have said, you're going to bring deliverance. If you're going to do as you have said, you're going to bring deliverance. This is, the, this is one place I think Gideon executed little faith because he already knows that God has said, I'll be with you. He already knows God has said, I'll bring you victory. The question I had to ask myself and I want to ask you is, do you know what God has said? Do you know what God says so that you can follow him? so that you can discern right and wrong? How well do we know this? Do you know the voice of God so you will know what direction to go? Hebrews 5.14 says, A spirit of discernment is trained through constant practice so that you will be able to distinguish good and evil. Are we men and women of the word where we can recognize the voice of the world, and the voice of God. Back to an observation and story. Chapter 7, God has his 300, says he's going to defeat Midian, and then uh, he says to, to Gideon, he says, but if you're afraid, I want you to take your servant Pura into the enemy camp. So Gideon takes Pura, and he hears these soldiers, these enemy soldiers discussing a dream, and as they're discussing a dream, it says, surely God has delivered us into Gideon's hand. So again, look at the grace of God here that he initiates before Gideon keeps asking for signs, right? And now God says, okay, I'm getting ready to send you in. Terrible odds. If you're a little bit afraid, if you need a little, if you need a little more assurance, I want you to go down, take your servant, go down into the camp and listen to the rumors. And all of a sudden, he realizes the enemy is fearful. And so God brings Gideon assurance from seeing how contagious the fear is. And it says Gideon worshipped God, comes back to his people, and starts delighting and rallying his troops. Two takeaways. Fear is contagious, but so is courage. Fear is contagious, and so is courage. I have a friend who says, out of a hundred men, 90 are targets, nine are soldiers, and one's a warrior. True courage, true faith, relying not on yourself, but the person of God and what he has said and who he has made you, that stuff starts to get all over. In fact, God doesn't just send Gideon, does he? He sends him with his friend. And as Gideon comes back with assurance, all of a sudden the Israel army is ready for battle. Remember, 300. 
Here's the battle plan. Well, God often uses his word to assure me. God often uses people to remind me of who I am. Do you have people around you who can strengthen your hand in God? Are you one of those people that reminds others of who they are in Christ? On with the battle plan. So here's what you get. You get trumpets, you get torches, you get shattered glasses. They're supposed to attack at night. They're supposed to attack at the changing of the guard. So all of a sudden, this 300 sounds like this massive army as they shatter the glass. There's torches all around. They're divided around the camp. It's in the middle of the night. So many people think at the changing of the guard, you got these Midianites sleeping in the camp. All of a sudden, they wake up in the dark, you know, rubbing the sleepies out of their eyes, and there's this army marching into their camp. Very likely their own people. And what happens? They begin attacking each other and killing each other. And we don't know this, but the text says nothing about any of the 300 killing a single enemy. And so God continues to be the provision of victory. But he does this a couple different ways. Some of it very, very miraculous. And some of it by Gideon's own personality and maybe Gideon's own plan. And here's my encouragement towards you. One part of the plan is this. Gideon says, once we start smashing these glasses and holding up our flames, our torches, shout out for the Lord and for Gideon. And that's what they do. And what I want you to see is the partnership here. That God is the source of the strength. God is the source of the wisdom. God is the provider. But he uses Gideon's position. He uses Gideon's personality. Ben said it earlier, God doesn't have a different plan to use something else. God's going to use you. God's going to partner with your personality that he put in there and your experience and all the things that you bring to the table and he wants to infuse himself in you. Sometimes I think we see ourselves here and God over here and oh God, please show up. In fact, sometimes we pray, get me out of the way. And I, I understand what we're trying to say. But mo I don't think God necessarily gets you out of the way. Pride, self-glory, things like that, absolutely. I think God infuses you and expresses himself through you. And that's what I see him doing with Gideon. In Judges 8, 22 and 23, after the victory, Israel's all excited. And he says to, they say to Gideon, hey, we want you to be our king, and we want your sons to rule after you, and we want to follow you. Israel still doesn't get it, right? They're still missing God. Yes, they come to church. Yes, they pray with their kids at night. Yes, maybe they read the Bible. They're still missing God. They still want to use God to better their life. They want bits of the Christian life, but they're still missing the goodness of God. They still want to follow a man. I hope we're not doing the same. I want to wrap up with an interesting little, really with two names. I think so much of this story is about whether we are relying on our own resumes and either disqualifying ourselves or relying on our own resumes and arrogantly puffing up. I see that's what happens usually when we look at ourselves. And it's simply by two names. Gideon has lots of sons. One illegitimate son is called Abimelech. 
which means that name means my father is king. So Abimelech, I think, represents when man is self-reliant, when the focus is still on man, when everything is man-centered. My father is king. And Abimelech convinces the people to raise him up as the new king. And then he slaughters all 70, 69 of his brothers. One is left. And that one's name is Jotham. And Jotham stands up at the edge of the, the city and he kind of sends a curse upon the people. He says, do you really want Abimelech to be your king? He's going to turn against you and you're going to turn against him. And that's exactly what happens. Abimelech kills tons of the villages, his own people. And at a certain point, they get sick of that and they kill him. Jotham means Yahweh is perfect. So you get this one picture of self-reliance, self-deliverance, focus on man. And you get this other picture of declare the perfection of God and come underneath His grace and partner with what He has done and who He has made you and watch deliverance come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we get to see it in so many different ways. Sometimes I get to observe it from afar and watch how you interact graciously with other people, whether it be 3,000 years ago or yesterday. And we thank you for how personal you are, that if we take the time to look at our own lives, we consistently see the goodness of God. We consistently see the patience of God who is happy towards us. We consistently see God who gives us humble confidence so that we might be used as your ambassadors. We love you and we praise you. Amen.